of millions of animals across the country are used each year for medical research, chemical testing, and education. It's a growing concern on Capitol Hill that parents who buy some of those games... As the aggressor, you're engaged as the person who commits the violence. ...may not realize just how much violence they're getting. We do these things because we care about the animals. and consolations, old chums. It's a me, Dixby Caravaggio. And this is In Lieu Of, the first podcast to have successfully manipulated the space-time continuum. But it's weird because we can only time travel while we're recording. And the effects of traveling through time are only discernible to me, so you'll have to take my word for it that we've just re-entered the hallowed year of 1991, dudes. In this issue, we're going two-dimensional. We're going platforming. We're going to collect as many rings and keep as many Chaos Emeralds away from Dr. Robotnik as we can, all while avoiding sharp objects, drowning, and Robotnik's badniks, those animal slaves powering his fiendish robotic exoskeletons. I'm talking about perhaps the most famous hedgehog ever to lace up a pair of running shoes, to enjoy his own mega-lucrative video game franchise, and, yes, nowadays, to hide his shame as Hollywood tries to make him into a feature film star. With its 1991 release, Sega's Sonic the Hedgehog changed video games forever, but in this game... As in this issue, rings and extra lives aren't the only stakes. What about the animals? The ones captured and forced into serving Robotnik's diabolical schemes? Yeah, I want to talk about them. The manipulation of animals in service to the advancement of human medicine, science, body transformation, and education is a long, global, fascinating history. So why am I looking to an almost 30-year-old 16-bit video game for context on this history? Because I think there's more to the arguments for and against these practices, ostensibly aimed at enhancing and improving human lives, and how these arguments manifested, perhaps inadvertently, in the popular, emergent media of the 90s. You know, the usual stuff we like to talk about on this show. In lieu of taking a hard, sometimes graphic look at the conditions of animals undergoing testing and experiments, and how the rights of these animals, if they exist in the first place, are of lesser value than our lives, why did Sonic the Hedgehog present a world populated by weaponized, mechanized animal slaves? Volume 1, Issue 4. Welcome to the Next Level. Danita Stokes, president of HAG. It's bad enough that Sega Genesis has the most 16-bit games, but this new Sonic the Hedgehog, oh, he really ducked my doilies. They say he's incredibly fast. Well, what's the hurry, mister? Hmm? And about his attitude. Smarty pants. Why can't it be more like that nice boy Mario? Oh! Little brat! Now, get Sonic free when you buy a Sega Genesis system at its new price of $149.99. I come before you this issue, kiddos, to confess something. I didn't get a Sega Genesis home console until way after it was popular to get a Sega Genesis home console. The Nintendo 64 had wrestled away console dominance from Sega. Sony was doing more to pull consumers away from cartridges and push them towards discs. And here I was, a little Dixby, with his Sega Genesis. Popular early 90s titles like NBA Jam and Streets of Rage were still in brick and mortars, but their stock was definitely dwindling. Their shelf space receding to Mario Kart 64 and Metal Gear Solid. 
I've always been a video game novice, klutz, noob, whatever you want to call us lurkers, those of us on the periphery of fundamentally understanding video games, how they work, how to improve our poor skills, how they got to be so popular. Here's my other confession. Genesis games in particular continue to hold a strange fascination for me. begun collecting old titles online, finding some gems that I haven't seen or played in decades, some of them that I never got to play when they were first released. They're like old friends who stop by, complete with cartridge, case, and booklet. I was never good enough to beat a game on my own at least not on Genesis. It's weird, when I got older, you know, and had a PlayStation 3 maybe, I was able to beat games. Maybe they were on easy or normal mode, but I could generally get through something if I was really interested in it, you know, if it could hold my interest. It was just something about those Genesis games, I don't know. Back in the day, I couldn't finish one. And when I try to play them today, I still can't. If I didn't have a Sega Genesis growing up, how am I so familiar with it? Well. And maybe some of you out there kiddos have experienced something similar to this. While I didn't have a console, I knew some people who did. My cousins had a Genesis, and before watching Let's Plays on YouTube was a thing, I would spend hours just watching Bubsy, Cool Spot, Aladdin, Toe Jam and Earl, Jurassic Park, Earthworm Jim, and of course, of course, Sonic. remember a time when Sonic was everywhere, and not in a cringy way. See the recent attempt at a live-action Sonic movie. Sonic the Hedgehog was released in 1991 to critical acclaim, and you know the kids kind of liked it too. The game sold over 15 million units and spurred many, many sequels. Sonic the Hedgehogs 2 and 3, Sonic Spinball, Sonic and Knuckles, Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine... Sega had emphatically responded to Nintendo, with a mascot that could run faster and leap higher than the Super Mario Brothers. Sonic the Hedgehog pushed the conventions of 2D platformers to the blue, spiky razor's edge, challenging the notion of what was possible with 16 bits. The confrontation of Sega and Nintendo laid the foundation for what came after. From the rise of Sony's PlayStation and Microsoft's Xbox, to the missteps of the GameCube, and the Dreamcast. While we're not going to delve into the war for the soul of the North American video game market in the 90s, go ahead and check out Blake J. Harris's 2014 book, Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle that Defined the Generation. And what was this war all about? Sega sold over 30 million units of its Genesis console. Nintendo sold over 60 million NES consoles and nearly 50 million SNES consoles worldwide. Just like Sonic the Hedgehog changed video games forever, the prevalence of video games in everyday life changed everything about everyday life. I mean, video games were making their presence felt in the late 80s and early 90s. Not just for the kids who wanted nothing more than to wake up on Christmas morning and tear into the latest gaming experience, but also those kids' parents. While Nintendo was geared toward family-friendly entertainment, Sega sought to tap into a different market with some of its titles, a slightly older, perhaps more mature market to prove that video games weren't just for the little tykes, but could appeal to teenagers and maybe even older demographics. Parents not only had to worry about how much the games and the consoles that played them cost, and not only about how much time their kids were spending in front of said consoles, but also about the content their children were consuming. You see... Uh, how do I put this?
for those of you who weren't around back then in the early 90s, video games, of course, have controversies today. Loot boxes, microtransactions, reports of record profits, and poor, poor working conditions. But uh, back then, to the time that I'm thinking about, video games had a, uh, how shall I put it, in the early 90s, they began to develop an image problem. like Street Fighter, and especially like Mortal Kombat, with its ostentatious gore and realistic, for the times, representation of blood, bones, and other body parts, quickly caught the attention of politicians and academics, who sought to curb the excesses of violent video games, and to study such games' effects on the youth who played them. Here's an ABC World News Tonight report from the 90s with good old Peter Jennings. Video games have become a $4 billion a year business, and a great many children, as you parents know, have put them on their Christmas lists. As ABC's Bill Greenwood reports, there is a growing concern on Capitol Hill that parents who buy some of those games may not realize just how much violence they're getting. One of the most vicious games is called Mortal Kombat. The objective is to finish off your opponent violently. Another method is decapitation. Critics, including the National PTA, say such video games contribute to violence in real life. And television's Captain Kangaroo says parents are not paying enough attention. Understand that these are not harmless toys, that uh, they can indeed uh, cause great emotional and uh, other damage to a child. Congress will be asked to establish a rating system to protect children from gruesome games. We now require warning labels on toys that can potentially damage children's bodies. Why not do so on a toy that can damage their minds? So next week, the U.S. Senate will conduct hearings on ways to supervise the video industry. Kids playing Mortal Kombat literally fought each other to the death. Sometimes zany, completely unrealistic death, but death nonetheless. Although the Super NES port removed some of the game's brutality, like replacing blood with sweat and tempering the fatalities a bit, Mortal Kombat was quick to attract the attention of Senators Lieberman, who we heard in the clip earlier, and Herb Cole. In response to the threat of governmental regulations, the Entertainment Software Rating Board, or ESRB, was formed in 1994. It was essentially a move by the video game industry to self-regulate. The ESRB has been going strong for the past 25 years, mainly so the U.S. government won't go strong on regulations. Many experts have put such arguments connecting violence and violent media to bed. However, for some, the question remains, are violent video games responsible for a violent culture? Or are the games a reflection of a culture who can conceive of violence all on its own? It's a question as old as, ready, fight! The whole fascination with violence in video games is, is nothing more than an adjunct to what's going on in, in media and forever. I mean, you know, look back to, you know, Greek plays. You've got guys gouging their eyes out on stage and doing all sorts of wild stuff. It's just, that's pervasive in human behavior. So it, it's going to manifest itself in everything, including games. Markham says he believes there is too much debate about the violence and that the real star is the animation and effects. That is what he says fuels this industry. This is a lot like the arms race. You know, you've got graphics technology from the hardware manufacturers getting better, so certain developers are going to always exploit that, and they're going to say, hey, look how much more realistic my game is, so you are obliged to keep up with that. If you don't, you're going to get thrown out of the market. And with this technological wizardry comes new ways to make the experience more graphic and more immersive. Some experts warn this immersive, almost lifelike experience desensitizes people in a troubling way. You're engaged now as the aggressor. You're engaged as the person who commits the violence, not just someone who watches the violence. While your old NPC, Dixby Caravaggio, won't weigh in on the legitimacy of this argument in today's issue, I do wish to make an assumption. Or better yet, to follow the line of reasoning of those who reason that violent video games can make violent teens and adults. If that's true, 
Can it work in the other direction? Players who make positive choices in-game will make positive decisions in life? Hmm. Let me show you what I'm getting at. I was using Mortal Kombat as an example of the scrutiny put on media like video games by those who are not said media's intended audience, like Joe Lieberman. I was also using Mortal Kombat to talk about the debate over violent video games because of course I was! Apologies to you kiddos who weren't around when Mortal Kombat's 1, 2, and 3 came out. That's all I really remember about the franchise. Remember, I didn't have a Sega Genesis growing up. It wasn't like I was able to really play these games with any regularity. But the thing I remember most about about the debate was Mortal Kombat. That franchise was at the center of everything. I guess for some context, terrified parents who were terrified of Marilyn Manson in the late 90s were likely the same parents terrified of Mortal Kombat in the early 90s. In their minds, the two properties cut from the same violently influential cloth. I mean, Mortal Kombat started it all. Or did it? I thought it had to be Mortal Kombat, but then I came across this report from 1988. Four years before the release of the first Mortal Kombat. John Stossel reports, nuts for Nintendo, when 2020 continues. It may be the most addictive toy in history, and it's definitely the hottest thing this Christmas. Nintendo video games. They first arrived from Japan uh, three years ago, and now millions of American kids are hooked and mesmerized. When they do stop to talk, it's in a language only they understand. School bus drivers report the kids are talking less about clothes and sports and what Joe did to Jane, and more about... When you get to those things that go up and down, you just jump on them. It's... After school, even on the day that brings the first beautiful snowfall of the season, everyone's eager to get inside the house so they can rush to get to the television set. The kids delight in finding new twists to the games, secret passages they didn't discover the first times they played, bizarre new weapons. They're throwing things that I've never even discovered in this game. Yeah, because you, cause you don't know. If you're a grown-up, you hardly, know, rem, well, you hardly do this. If you're a grown-up, you have work to do. Now you really messed up. All this brings us to a final question. Should parents buy these games at all? The National Coalition Against Television Violence thinks they shouldn't because they say they're bad for kids. Like I like how you shoot the people with boomerangs and bombs. I just like jumping on things and killing them and shooting things. The coalition says this will make some kids act violently. Wait a sec. Parents whose kids played Super Mario Brothers 2? Worried about the violence the game was exposing their impressionable babies to? The newscaster quickly questions this assertion in the report, moving the attention onto something else. Go look, and you can find literature on the subject of violence and video games as early as the mid-1980s. And that's just what I was able to find. It sounds strange to us in 2019, doesn't it? It's like an audience in the 1930s watching something from Universal, like Frankenstein or Dracula, and subsequently running out of the theater or fainting or becoming sick. We watch Frankenstein now and shrug. But what if we transported that same audience to a 2009 theater showing Transformers Revenge of the Fallen? We'd watch their heads explode because they physiologically couldn't reckon their experience of the world with what they were seeing. Mom, Dad, if you find jumping on stout, cartoony creatures to be too violent for little Billy, then you'll just die when you see Sub-Zero rip Liu Kang's skull and spine through his jugular while his flaccid corpse crumbles to the ground in a bloody heap. Sub-Zero wins flawless victory fatality. How violent did mid to late 80s parents rate Mario jumping on a Goomba and flattening it? Or Luigi stomping on a Koopa Troopa's shell? It turns out Mortal Kombat in and of itself didn't create parental fears about video games, but rather exacerbated them with its heightened graphics and gameplay. I don't want to speculate 
well, okay, maybe I want to speculate a little bit about what happens to one of the Mario Brothers enemies when it has been dispatched by one of the mustachioed duo. I wonder because it doesn't seem like they stick around. The enemies, that is. I think Mario kills them. And there's really no way around that statement. It's violent in a way. Maybe there's something to that 1988 news report after all. Sega wanted to answer Nintendo with Sonic the Hedgehog, a cooler character with attitude to win over kids. But what about winning over parents? Sega and the other consoles would have to deal with how Mortal Kombat and its ilk changed their industry, but remember this is 1991, and we're a few years away from congressional committees and the ESRB. Sonic's cool attitude and lightning-fast gameplay would secure the kid vote, but what would secure their parents' wallets? Can we imagine the creators of Sonic the Hedgehog consciously changing certain aspects of traditional side-scrolling adventure gameplay as a way not only to distinguish it from its Mario-associated foundations, but also to show parents and kids that the violence they had come to expect in video games didn't have to follow the same Goomba-stomping logic of Sonic's predecessor? What if an act of violence could be productive or moral what if it could be liberative? What if, when Sonic jumped on his enemies, they didn't spin off screen or retreat into their shells, but in a flash of bright smoke, transform from a techno-adversary to a familiar form? To the shape of a friend? A being who, under no fault of its own, wound up enslaved by a megalomaniacally demented robotics expert? A creature who, under duress, was forced to hunt and kill Sonic and his allies. Is it too much of a stretch? Maybe. But your old commentator-in-chief, Dixby Caravaggio, well, he don't take too kindly to coincidences. Stay with me on this one, kiddos. After all, you never know what might happen in the next level of this game. Every year, thousands of other animals suffer this ugly pain in the name of beauty. Please don't use cosmetics tested in this way. The organization behind that PSA now goes by Cruelty Free International. The PSA in question features a woman, presumably a model, applying various cosmetic products to her face and skin. Eyeshadow, foundation, lipstick, perfume. As the cosmetics are applied, though, the woman's face changes. Rashes and hives develop on her cheeks and neck. Her eyes begin to water. Her lips grow gruesome cuts after being touched by her lipstick. Judy Dench provides the voiceover. This PSA called Smile has its own IMDb page. 
that you won't find if you search for cruelty-free international. Because back in 1989, when the PSA ran in the UK, the organization went by a different name. British Union for the Abolition of Vivisection. If you need help with the Latin there, here's the definition from an English dictionary. Vivisection. The practice of performing operations on live animals for the purpose of experimentation or scientific research. And here's the kicker. A parenthetical note at the end after scientific research. Used only by people who are opposed to such work. So vivisection is only called vivisection by those who don't perform what the performer wouldn't call vivisection. I think I get it. The justification for testing on animals is a position I don't feel particularly inclined to go over at length. It seems pretty clear to me. Test whatever it is on a living thing even if said living thing isn't the intended recipient for whatever is being tested, to see the results as an indicator of how whatever is being tested will react once whatever is being tested has been cleared for use by the living thing it's intended for. Personally, I'm naturally squeamish when it comes to stuff like this. No dead frog or fetal pig dissections for me, thanks all the same. But even if I wasn't, I feel like I would have a hard time performing an operation on an anesthetized yet still quite living thing. It's business, it's research, it's a possible breakthrough, I guess. Okay, I need to um pause for a sec. Consider this a PSA for the many animal abuse and animal testing PSAs I could feature in this part of the issue. For the first time since launching this lark of a podcast, I'm relieved that we're audio only. I really have a hard time watching this stuff. Videos or series of pictures showing abused animals or what happens to animals undergoing laboratory experimentation. I get it. The point is to shock us with unflinching reality. And the aim is to force us to reckon with our habits. What we buy, what we eat maybe. To force us to look at ourselves. It's graphic, it's horrible, it's torturous. It's really difficult to watch and that's the point this is usually the part of the issue where i would encourage you to go find out more about today's topic but it's difficult for me to make such a recommendation even in spite of the fact that for those activists and groups who produce such psas it's important to face the images the sounds the descriptions without blinking covering our ears turning our heads away i ask you now for a little clemency kiddos the decision to seek out this stuff on your own time, I leave to your discretion. For now, I'm going to march on ahead with what I feel I need to make my points, and nothing more, because, because this stuff, it's just too much. Okay, arch the back, even the shoulders, stiffen the upper lip. I would have remembered seeing a commercial like Smile, as a middle-class American kid growing up in the late 80s and early 90s. I was ignorant, by and large, of the animal rights debate, and maybe my ignorance had something to do with being an American kid. Overseas, Smile had its contemporaries, like the 1992 teddy bear PSA from Liberty. Note the spelling of Liberty, L-I-B-E-A-R-T-Y. You wouldn't do this to a teddy bear. You wouldn't teach it to dance by burning its feet. You wouldn't drill through its nose and palate to make room for a rope or a chain. You wouldn't hack off its paws to make soup or tear out its gallbladder to take as a tonic. But every day these unspeakable things happen to real bears all over the world. Or 1988's The Battery from CIWF, Compassion in World Farming. Will everyone please take their seats? Very shortly, your row will be divided into units of three. Do not obstruct the gangways whilst the cages are installed. There is no cause for alarm. These cages are for your protection. Please cooperate with the surgeons. They will remove your teeth and nails. This greatly reduces the incidence of cannibalism. 
it is in your interest to comply. Eating, sleeping and defecating may cause some discomfort, but your space allowance complies exactly with government regulations and you have the satisfaction of knowing that you are part of one of the world's most cost-effective production systems. You have nothing to worry about. This system has been tested on 45 million specimens, with, I might add, your approval. Welcome to the battery. What about the 1989 animated PSA from the Whale and Dolphin Conservatory Society featuring Anthony Hopkins? Somewhere in this vast place, there's a small group of islands known as the Faroe Islands. No one knows why, but once a year, large groups of pilot whales return here. The islanders look forward to their visit each year and prepare a special homecoming for them. First of all, they herd the whales into the harbour. Then they harpoon them. And then cut them up with hunting knives while they're still alive. The noise you can hear is the whale screaming as it experiences this horrific death. The more the whales scream, the more the crowd seem to enjoy it. Meat is then distributed to the crowd, and once their freezers are crammed full, the rest is left on the beach to rot. This is all from the same YouTube video. Top 25 Scariest Animal Cruelty PSAs. In just one online collection, we're faced with animal neglect, abuse, cruelty, poaching, factory farming, and laboratory testing. Notice something about the voiceovers, too. They're not from around here. Based on my research, overall, the UK and the EU have taken a harder line, frankly, on animal rights than most of their contemporary world powers, including the United States. In America, there's a different stock of PSA, which we're more accustomed to. Now, I'm gonna do something, and you may already know where I'm going. You may know what I'm about to play. For those of you who do, I'm sorry. And for those of you who don't, I'm very sorry. Those poor furry... Oh, most of us have seen the Sarah McLaughlin Animal Cruelty PSA. That song has become less synonymous with her and more synonymous with the watering-eyed faces of shivering dogs and cats behind the lonely steel of kennel and cage. It makes me want to stop recording right now and go adopt a shelter animal. It also makes me want to negotiate the meeting of a baseball bat to the side of the head of someone who would abuse or torture a dog. It makes me feel. And that's how it's done in the States, for the most part. Pull on the hot strings, coax the complacent with sad images and sad music and sad, 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 sad. Hey, I tried to find examples of American-produced PSAs like Smile. Or the Environmental Investigation Agency's 1995 PSA called Fight Back, featuring awful, gruesome scenes of animal cruelty underscored by Trent Reznor's blistering vocals. I came up short, though. Correct me if I'm wrong, kiddos, but I cannot find examples of this caliber of PSAs from this side of the Atlantic. Whether taking into account Smile or Sarah McLaughlin, I think it's safe to say that both strains of PSA the nauseating and the solicitous, weren't exclusively targeting me when I was a kid. Would I have been affected by these PSAs if I saw them growing up? You bet. But these weren't the PSAs I was accustomed to. I was used to messages in my Saturday morning entertainment. 
Shows like Batman the Animated Series would stand out from their 80s forerunners and some of their 90s contemporaries in many, many ways. One such way being the absence of a special message, a, a PSA, something at the end, like a piece of wholesome advice about or a warning against uh, not-so-wholesome activities. Even if I couldn't describe in the moment what these shows were doing to my young mind, I knew it was of a different intention than the adventure preceding it. I said I would never again use makeup, but makeup is okay, as long as it is cruelty-free. You can help by purchasing only cruelty-free makeup and household products. How do you know which is which? Some products say cruelty-free right on the label. There are animal help groups that will be happy to send you a free list of companies that do not use animal testing. Be careful what you buy. The power is yours! There may have been a common theme, something to tie it all back to the episode, but in these penultimate moments, the characters were speaking directly to me. They were looking at me. This wasn't part of the show. This was extracurricular. What was our preferred method for taking our social medicine back then? Let's just say it went down easier if it followed a showdown between the Planeteers and Hoggish Greedly. What about video games, though? The media that could draw youngsters to their television screens when cartoons couldn't. We've talked a lot about Sega and Nintendo and how those two companies inaugurated the console wars. But for a moment, instead of continuing to look at those companies whose games took the world by storm in the 90s, I want to look at the games themselves and the innovators who conceived them. Really, I just want to step back from the brutality of animal abuse and the hyperactivity of kids' entertainment and step into the comforting encircling glow of Shigeru Miyamoto, the creator of such hallowed properties as The Legend of Zelda, Donkey Kong, and our boy Mario. Pro tip, if you ever need a break from the hecticness of your life, your job, or even this podcast, listen to a Miyamoto interview, preferably without the English spoken word dubbed over. His calm will relax you. Sort you out. Get your mind back in shape to face another day in this crazy world. Here's an interview I was able to find that Miyamoto gave when his video games began captivating audiences like no other media on the planet. Quote, As a parent, my eyes have been opened to something new recently. I've noticed that when a parent sees their child reading a book, they think that's a good, proper thing. But sitting their children down in front of a TV to play a video game somehow makes parents feel guilty, even though games are an active experience. Why is that, I wonder? I'd like to make a game that, when a mother sees her child playing it for the first time, she thinks, Ah, good, my child is old enough to play video games now, end quote. To create video games that parents actually want their kids to play is a noble endeavor, one that makes as much ethical sense as it does financial, especially if the little tykes are none the wiser to mom and dad's silent approval of how they choose to spend their time. With Sega's Sonic the Hedgehog, we have an ostensibly different intention here. Whatever, mom, I'm gonna play Sonic because he's rad and has attitude and is totally cool and 90s marketing cliche, marketing cliche, marketing cliche. Dude. On its surface, and if the commercials are any indication, Sonic was a rebellious game. Not as overtly rebellious as later titles like Mortal Kombat, yet representing a clear bulwark against what Mario, what Nintendo, what Miyamoto had produced. But let's dig in beyond the commercials. What is the story of 1991's Sonic the Hedgehog? As I admitted earlier, I never beat this game, so I had to go look it up. I watched playthroughs online, getting to see levels I've never experienced before. If you're curious, I usually end up dying somewhere towards the end of Marble Zone Act 2. Yeah, I'm that sucky. With the magic of YouTube, though, I got to see the game in its entirety. It took about an hour, but I made it all the way to the final boss in the final zone. I think, had I seen this ending before, say, the ending to Sonic the Hedgehog 2, I would have been more impressed. I remember when my cousins reached the final level of Sonic 2. 
with Robotnik's hulking machine made in his image slowly lumbering towards our blue hero, with a view of Earth in the backdrop of Robotnik's death egg, now that's how you end a game. Not the way the first title did. Bopping Robotnik either in the left cylinder thing or in the right until he's fed up and tries to escape. One more bop and we see the familiar image of a foiled, red-faced, burned-up Robotnik piloting his egg-shaped pod, careening out of control to oblivion off-screen, presumably crashing somewhere on planet Mobius. And this is just me ripping on the final boss. I mean, there's not much of a story here. And frankly, the stories don't grow in complexity as the series goes on. You face Robotnik, you beat Robotnik, and that's your game. Or is it? Before the credits roll, if you collected all the Chaos Emeralds along the way while playing the game, you're greeted to another site. Sonic celebrating his victory over Robotnik with all of his animal friends. Rabbits, chickens, pigs, seals, blue jays, penguins, squirrels, the gang's all here. And then from Sonic's chest spring the emeralds. They float in the air for a moment before vanishing in a flash of bright light. A confused Sonic looks both ways and I guess thinks, the hell with it, I'm partying. He jumps at you, the player, index finger pointed, a sly smile across his face. It's almost like he knew there'd be a sequel. I'm coming at this from a legitimate place of curiosity, and it's something I've always legitimately, genuinely wondered about. Why animals? Why anything? Why not just make them robots? Metal exteriors with nothing inside but circuits and more metal. What do you get? I mean, what is the necessity of adding this detail to the Sonic games? And it's in every game. It's in Sonic 1, Sonic 2, Sonic 3. Even when you end an act after beating the boss, there's no flagpole for Sonic or Tails to triumphantly slide down like Mario or Luigi might. What's there waiting for our hero? Remember, it's the capsules planted firmly in the ground. When the hedgehog leaps onto the yellow button, his weight triggers the capsule to explode, freeing its contents. A bunch of little critters. It's those same rabbits, chipmunks, and squirrels. Those might be interchangeable, I don't know. All manner of rodent and fowl emerge from the fiendish device. Now, these animals aren't like Sonic, or Tails, or Knuckles. For one thing, none of them wear white gloves. Neither have they any special abilities. As far as the player can tell, they're just ordinary animals, just like the ones in the player's real life. But again, why? With no other story element to latch onto, it just seems superfluous, doesn't it? It's a nice thing for Sonic to do, I guess. And maybe it makes Dr. Robotnik more despicable than Bowser? But what does this part of the game do to the players? Maybe a better way to ask this is to reverse the question. How did we, the players, play the game? Were we the ones trying to get the highest score? Or finish a level fastest? Or 100%ing? Collecting all items and beating all minor enemies before moving on to the boss? If there is any lesson to be learned by playing the Sonic games, if we can reasonably eke out a moral to the pretty generic, pretty routine story of Sonic 1, of bad guy does bad things so good guy should run and jump and beat levels before vanquishing bad guy, then maybe you can forgive me in this era of kid PSAs, of kids' media used to positively influence kids, of the subversion of that logic by games like Mortal Kombat and the manipulation of it by senators and teachers and parents. Forgive me for reading a little too much into one of the most successful, most lucrative, and yes, most influential video game titles of all time. So, here we are, no closer to a definitive answer about the violence in video games debate. Or the debate over animal experimentation. Or the debate I'm having with myself in this issue as to whether the creators of Sonic the Hedgehog were trying to positively influence the next generation. Or were they just trying to do something, anything to beat Nintendo, to beat Mario, to control the video game world at all costs. Making the inclusion of the animal rescuing angle in Sonic purely coincidental, incidental, not meant to inspire reflection or action. When I say here we are, I'm asking you to actually look around in 2019 and to see how these old arguments about violence in video games are, 
not that old, apparently. This is the first time since beginning this show that something in the mainstream news, something very unnostalgic, something very present, has forced me to modify the scripts I write for these issues. You know what I'm talking about. The pictures from Walmarts across the country. The video game shelves laid bare, missing their popular and, according to the President of the United States and his party, violent titles like Call of Duty. While the gun departments in the very same stores are stocked, locked, and loaded, ready to sell weapons to whomever can afford them and pass a background check. One of the reasons I like recording in lieu of is that I don't have to look at the now too closely. I can escape, in some sense, and take you all with me. And I anticipated this issue going that way, following the same mold. But who am I to ask for the privilege to escape our very violent times? I said before that I wasn't going to weigh in on this argument, but the recent back-to-back mass shootings in El Paso, Texas, and in Dayton, Ohio, have made this next statement of mine very easy to state. Call of Duty and Red Dead Redemption 2 didn't cause these senseless, cowardly acts. The cause is much deeper, more complex, and likely not singular. I imagine it's hard to soundbite something like that, so let's just ban the video games. But the guns can stay. It is within this social climate that I retreat into nostalgia. I told you before, it's like a drug for me. It's a defense mechanism. It's a comfort. It's a way, weirdly, to both balk against and to make sense of the present. When I remember playing my old Genesis, way after it was cool to play Genesis but not before it became fashionable to play retro consoles. I remember how I played Sonic the Hedgehog. The 100%ing that I mentioned earlier, that was me. I'm being honest here, I found that I couldn't run past, subvert, or by some other means evade Robotnik's robotic minions. Once I found out what they were concealing, once I learned their secret, there are little animals in there. If I used the momentum I would get from a long spin attack and maybe after several vertical loops, then I could get enough speed maybe, and with a spring, enough height to avoid the perils on the ground, like buzz bombers or caterkillers. I would make it to the end faster, get a better time bonus, possibly keep more rings. Sure, I might miss an opportunity at a Chaos Emerald, but who knows? Maybe there'd be something way up at the top of the screen that I didn't know was there, like a one-up or an invincible item box. If I jumped over an enemy in a Mario game and left it behind, good on me. No muss, no fuss, I get to fireball another day. What happened to the buzz bomber in Sonic, though? The one I didn't stop to attack, defeat, and ultimately free. The one I didn't risk my rings and my lives to save, because I was too busy trying to beat my score. I love animals in real life, and personally, as a player, I find it just as hard not to love them in these games. Especially these games. The games I grew up with. Did playing the Sonic series make me a better person? Is there really causation here? play as a benevolent hedgehog and live as a decent human? In my case, as with many others I assume, I doubt it. Did Captain Planet and G.I. Joe turn wasteful and lazy kids into recycling and disciplined adults? Or did Mortal Kombat turn sweet kids into violent adults? For me, kid me, playing Sonic the Hedgehog was an impactful, influential experience. Even if the game had a small, tiny, imperceptible influence on who I ultimately became, on the person who comes before you these weeks past to regale you with tales of the other media that helped shape him, then for that, I'm grateful to Sonic. Now if they could just get the live-action movie right! boy, another issue behind us. This one was, well, like I said, it didn't turn out how I'd originally conceived it. The violence in video games angle was meant to be more of a bridge to get somewhere. 
not to be somewhat of a main focus. Also, I had a whole section chronicling the animal rights movement in the United States. I even recorded it. But that segment, along with some other stuff, would have pushed this issue well beyond the one-hour mark. And I just don't think I'm ready for that, kiddos. And I wouldn't want to presume on our friendship, either. Speaking of our relationship, it is with a heavy heart that I must announce something I already announced before the show kicked off in July. It was announced on Instagram, why aren't you following us yet, at in lieu of underscore podcast. We are reaching the end of Volume 1, which totals five full issues, and that other random stuff that I've been releasing. Crazy, right? I mean, we've covered so much so far. How will we ever wrap this first-of-its-kind audio experience? We've talked about Batman, Mulder and Scully, the Ghostbusters, and now Sonic the Hedgehog. Where can it go from here? Oh, yeah, uh, there. It's it's gonna go there. One twenty-two, one twenty-two, and an eight. One twenty-two and an eight. Terrific. Where the heck is one twenty-two and an eight? You're standing on it, dude. Just slip it down here. Give me that. Hey, this is a ten. The tab's 13. You're two minutes late, dude. Ah, come on. I couldn't find a place. Wise man say, forgiveness is divine, but never pay full price for late pizza. Don't fret, though, kiddos. We still have one final issue for Volume 1. And as volumes are wont to do, I guess, we're planning more. More volumes with many more issues around themes like finance and gender and religion, and I can sense I'm losing you. But don't go anywhere because we're going to be featuring more in-depth studies of my and hopefully your favorite 80s and 90s things like... Well, I don't want to give too much away right now, otherwise I won't have anything to tease next time. But just because there won't be any full issues for a while doesn't mean I'm going anywhere. I'll still be here, in my dilapidated ranch outside of the lovely town of Home, Pennsylvania, where absolutely nothing psychologically devastating has ever happened. Just toiling away on some new audio creations. And not just in lieu of regular issues, either. There may be some people stopping by the old ranch to say hi, and I may record and share what happens. Trust me, it's way less creepy than it sounds. Well, my illustrious friends, in lieu of a more microtransactional host, I've been humbly yours, Dixby Caravaggio. Let's talk again! In the future! In the future!